Good morning. Good morning. And happy birthday. Now, the first thing I need to establish, because obviously I speak English properly, is that you can all hear me okay. It's a big church, so that, I mean, right, look at those people right at the, hello. She's waving back, she can hear me. Hi. I'm going to address all of this right to you. Uh, you know, I've, I've lived in Toronto for 32 years. I've never been to this church before. Uh, I know, shame on me. Uh, but it, 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 it's very beautiful, and it's such a, a joy to be here. Uh, let me explain. They said 20 minutes. I do tend to go on a bit. So if it goes on too long, just stand up and throw things in, and that'll, that'll be fine. A uh, little bit about myself. I, I'm from the UK originally, and I came here in 1987. I married a Canadian. Yay. Yes, I highly recommend it. I highly recommend it. I was giving a, uh, a paper, delivering a lecture, very important, at the University of Tirana in... Uh, yeah, I'm picking up the lingo, in, in 1986, and it, it was a literary conference about a British writer called G.K. Chesterton. It was an incredibly dull conference. I gave an incredibly dull lecture. But, but, at the end of it, there was a, a cocktail party, and this very beautiful young woman, possibly drunk, I don't know, came up to me, and she said, you're amazing. And thinking this may never happen again, I married her. And I was right, it has never happened again. And after 32 years of marriage, I don't think she's ever said it again either. But there you are, landed immigrant citizen. I'm so that's why I'm in Canada. I was a journalist in, in the UK and, and came to Canada. And we have four children. And uh, about six years ago, I, I, I became a Christian or found myself a Christian. I'm never sure of the language, really. But I, uh, in, in the early 1980s, and I remember uh, my dad, who was not a fan of organized religion, and I told him I'd I become a Roman Catholic, and he said, if it makes you happy, just don't tell me about it. <laughs> Which, for my dad, was pretty good. <laughs> and uh, about six years ago, I had a, a major change in, in my life. A, a, I suppose you'd call it a conversion. I was watching a TV show yesterday, The New Pope. It's not for everybody, but it's quite enjoyable. I emphasize it's not for everybody, actually. <laughs> but the, the Catholic Church isn't happy with it. But there's one line, John Malkovich, who plays the, the new pope, they ask him about his faith, and he said, it was a river, he says. It was a river, and then it became a storm. And I thought, that's really good. Every now and again, in non-religious TV, mainstream TV, you have these, these lines that really make you think, it was a river, it became a storm. That happened with me, I suppose. And... Uh, I left the Catholic Church, which is, it was my issue, not the church's issue. I'm not here to criticize anybody. And, uh, and I became a different kind of believer, really. My faith deepened, and I, I, I moved over into the Anglican Church. You could have had me as a Presbyterian, you see. You could have had me. You were too late. And uh, oddly enough, this Protestant church, and it is a Protestant church, it's a product of the Reformation, this Protestant church allowed me, enabled me, to be the Catholic I wanted to be. And then after a couple of years, people kept saying to me, you should be ordained. And I said, and you should be quiet. <laughs> no way, no way. And then I realized that black was very slimming. And so I embarked on three years of an MDiv, Masters of Divinity at Trinity College, which was interesting. Academically, I could cope. But it was things like the computer system. 
I was 58, and I understand the internet and things like that, but I couldn't work it out. And I remember one day I was in my study, and I was, um, I was remonstrating with the Lord, which is a euphemism for saying I was probably swearing. I couldn't cope with the system at all. I, what, are they, what are they asking of me, and what is this, and what is that? And my daughter, our youngest daughter, she came out of her room and said, what's the problem? And I said, oh, I, I just can't cope with all this. And she said, Dad... You want you to do it, do it. That's actually rather wise, annoyingly so. And I continued with it, and I graduated. And I was ordained uh, in uh, October, and I started at a church as an assistant, just an assistant, in December. I've I've never felt more complete and happy in my life. And I, I do think faith is an ongoing journey. I noticed there was a quote up there. I read the quote, and I thought, that's good. And I realized it was me. That was surprising. It is a, it's a permanent revolution. Faith should challenge us every day. If anyone says, I think I've got it right now, start again. So that's me. I, I'm a very ordinary Christian believer, trying my best, and I, I, I'm a journalist. Um, if you don't know the Anglican Church, how do, I, oh, how do I define the Anglican Church? That's a difficult one. I will tell you a story. A friend of mine is a barber, a hairdresser. Well, he's really a barber. It's very basic stuff, you know, short back and sides and that sort of thing. And he has a barber shop, and he's, he's not at all religious. He's quite atheistic, but he has this very interesting admiration for religion. And he said one day he opened the shop, and a Catholic priest came in, and he cut his hair, and the priest went to pay. It was only about $20 or something. Uh, but my friend said, no, Father, I'm not religious. I'm not Catholic, he said, but great admiration for religion for what you people do. It's my gift. He said, oh, that's very kind of you. And the next day, he went to open up the shop, open up the store, and there was a bottle of Irish whiskey waiting for him. Oh, wasn't, that, wasn't that nice? Wasn't that nice? About a month later, he opened up, and a, a rabbi, a reformed rabbi came in. And uh, he cut his hair, and at the end, the rabbi went to pay. He said, no, rabbi, I'm, I'm not religious, I'm not Jewish, but, you know, love what you do. My gift. Rabbi said, that's so kind of you. The next day, he went to open up, and there was a, a bag of freshly baked bagels waiting for him. Wasn't that nice? And about a month later, a Church of England vicar, Church of England vicar, came in, and he cut his hair, and he went to pay, and he said, no, not sure what I call you, uh, reverend, uh, my gift to you, my gift to you. And he said, that's so kind of you. The next day, he went to open up, and there was a long line of Anglican clergy. That's a pretty good working definition of, of, the, of, of the Anglican Church, you see? Now, that joke doesn't work with Presbyterians. I mean, what does a Presbyterian give as a gift? I'm not sure. Uh, the Irish whiskey wouldn't work. Not the Presbyterian. Single malt? Well, the Irish Presbyterians I know, that really wouldn't work. Um, a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, who in fact was probably the biggest influence on my life in terms of my faith and in terms of me being ordained, his partner died. I can talk about this now. Um, I, I knew he was dying. I didn't know it would be so quick. But his partner died uh, just before Christmas. It's been a very difficult time for him. And uh, he, he, he wrote a memoir a few years ago, which, I, which really changed my life. And there's a story in it which I think is in some ways the quintessence of the Christian faith. You know, I spent years studying divinity, learning language, trying to learn languages and reading books, and, and you realize the more you learn, the more you learn, the less you really need to know. I mean, it's really very simple. It's wonderfully, beautifully simple 
we tend to spend a lot of time trying to make it more complex and finding things to argue over, but it's very, very simple. It's about unconditional love. <coughs> My friend tells this story, and, and it, it was set in the, the early 1980s when AIDS, HIV, was just known in the West, late 70s, early 80s, and it was a death sentence. And it was at a time when the gay community was still very much on the fringe of society. Things changed after this, but it was still marginalized, persecuted, even in Britain. And there was a young man who lived in a quite isolated area, and he was gay, and he hadn't come out to his family. Just a few friends knew. It was very private, didn't want anybody to know. And someone said to him, you should be tested, you know, this, this, this AIDS thing. You should be tested. No, come on. Said, no, you should be. And he was tested, and you know what I'm going to say. It's positive. He was HIV positive. He was going to die. He was going to die. And he would die in pain, probably alone, and despised. Because at that time, AIDS was seen almost as you deserve it. Intravenous drug users, gay men. That was a subtext. Sometimes it was explicit. It's your own fault. They were lepers. If anyone were the lepers of contemporary society, relatively contemporary, the, 19, the early 1980s, it was men with AIDS. Don't touch, don't go near, blame their own fault. There were even people saying it's God's punishment. And this young man thought, I'm, I'm, I'm going to kill myself. Why wait? And he, he decided to do it one night. Now, the context of this, Mrs. Thatcher was in power, and not to attack Mrs. Thatcher, but it was a very conservative time in Britain. I was still living there at the time, and the police were in conflict with a lot of society, with miners' strike, and with the left, and with the gay community. No love lost the police and the gay community, and the police were seen as being very much a conservative force. Maybe unfairly, but that, that was a reputation. And this young man decided to kill himself by riding his motorbike into a, a wall or a tree, whichever came first. He came out of the town, he turned the lights off on the motorbike, opened up full throttle, and bang, rode into a wall, but didn't die. I can only imagine the horror. And he came to, realized he was still alive, and there was blood everywhere, blood everywhere, bleeding profusely. And then there was noise and commotion, and out of the darkness, what he thought was an angel, it wasn't an angel, it was a police officer with a high visibility vest, you know, it was orange and yellow and green, <clears throat> shining. And the police officer came towards him, and the young man, even though he was in great pain and, and terrible fear, he, with blood all over, said, you've got to know, you've got to know, I've got AIDS. And the police officer, this symbol of reaction and conservatism, knelt down in the blood, <clears throat> knelt down in the blood, cradled the man in his arms and said, and you've got to know, somebody loves you. And you've got to know, somebody loves you. You can read a library of theology, and unless or until you grasp that, you will not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
we see a great light. A great light comes into the world. The darkness is torn apart. God's creation is meant to work in a certain way, love and peace and justice and tolerance and inclusion. And until people grasp that unconditional love, you are loved, the great light has come, we will not understand what Christ Jesus was speaking about. I mentioned my dad earlier. My dad was a, <clears throat> a very ordinary man. Uh, I had my family tree, well, that, on my mum's side, actually, but I had my family tree traced on my mum's side, and, and the genealogist said to me, she, she telephoned me, and she said, she was in England, she said, now, I've got it back to 1720, she said, and you might not want to go any further because they never left the village. They, they, were far, they weren't even farmers, they were farm laborers. And it become, it gets, I mean, so my, my, my background, there is nothing interesting. Well, I suppose interesting, but you, know, you think somewhere there will be, I don't know, Napoleon. But that would be difficult, British. But um, you know, there was nothing of interest. My, my dad's family, uh, uh, well, a little different. My mum's family were, they go back to the Doomsday Book. My dad's family were Russian Jews. And they came over in the 1890s to Britain. And uh, my dad was the son of immigrants. And my dad was just an ordinary working-class man. He was in the RAF when he was 17, bomber command, last year of the war. And uh, didn't talk about it very much. And he, he was a tough man. He was an amateur bo- he was He was welterweight champion of bomber command in 1945, which is pretty good, because then they actually had people in the RAF, which they don't really now. But he, he was, he's a tough, strong, decent, politically incorrect loving man. He wasn't a perfect dad, but he was a good one. And, but he didn't, as I mentioned, he didn't like organized religion. And I think probably my parents married from different backgrounds, different religions, and they probably both saw a bit of discrimination. So didn't like organized religion, uh, but loving people. And one day I got a telephone call from my mom in Britain, and uh, I could tell something had happened from her voice. And she said, uh, Dad's had a very bad stroke, and we're not sure if he's going to pull through. And I said, I'm coming over. And I flew over that night, the 11 p.m. flight, to Heathrow, and went across London to where my parents live in East London, and knocked on the door, and my mom and I hugged, and we got in my dad's old used car, drove to the hospital, 10-minute drive, and the doctor said to us, he he was a very nice guy, he said, you know, we don't really know what's going on, with these things. We know so little about neurological issues. Assume he can hear. We think that hearing is still there. Assume he can hear everything you're saying and try to be as normal as possible. So we sat down, my mom, myself, and we tried to be as normal as possible, which is very difficult to do. (laughs) Because there's my dad, this tough man, and he's like a baby again. and He's wearing these pajamas that don't quite fit. And there's an, an IV in his arm, and there's some stitching in the back of his head from where he fell when he had the stroke, and it was saliva. He, he's nowhere, his eyes are nowhere, just sitting there, propped up. And so we, we tell jokes, and we talk about the weather. They don't even have weather in Britain. And we try to be as normal as possible, but it's the last thing you can be. This is the, the, the paradox. It's the last thing you can be is normal. And then the doors of the ward open, and, and my sister comes in, my sister and her husband and her daughter, and they all come in looking at the ground, and, they, and, and they're all trying to be as normal as possible. So me, my mum, my sister, 
five of us all trying to be as normal as possible, and we don't know what to do. We really don't know what to do, because you're trying to include someone that you can't include, and you're, and you're terribly sad. And then another person comes in, and this is my other niece, she's younger, and, and she does apparently know what to do because she doesn't walk into the room. She bounds into the room like a force of nature, like a force of lightning. It's like Tigger in the Disney movies. You know? and, she and she bounds into the room and she jumps on the bed in the British hospital. You don't do that. That's why Meghan Markle left. You don't do that. And she gets under the blankets of the bed in the British hospital. And she puts her arms around her grandpa in the bed of the British hospital, and she falls asleep. Now, I, I should add, this is the other aspect of this, that Katie is what is known as uh, handicapped, disabled, challenged. She's profoundly autistic. Uh, she'll never live alone. She's far too trusting of people. Uh, her speech is very bad. She, she makes noises that some people find disturbing. It, it's... It hasn't always been easy, and we don't, we're not as loving and tolerant as, as, as we think when it comes to these issues. So this little girl who is still despised by many, rejected by many, jumps on the bed in the British hospital, gets under the blankets, puts her arms around Grandpa and falls asleep. You see, because she does that all the time. Whenever she's dropped off at Grandma and Grandpa's house, she runs upstairs, jumps on Grandpa's bed, doesn't matter how tired he is, cuddles him and falls asleep. Why would it be any different now that there's blood and stuff and someone maybe throwing up in a corner and someone crying and someone shouting? That doesn't make any difference to her. She's not judged the situation. She loves Grandpa and she's fallen asleep. And for the first time in two days, my father shows emotion. He cries, and the tears begin to pour down his face, and we just look. And then he turns his head very slightly, and his, his eyes seem to be clear, and that they've been completely cloudy and opaque, but he, he, he's, they seem to clear, and he seems to be looking at me, and I think it's just a muscle spasm. Then his lips begin to tremble, and he's trying to make a word, and this is extraordinary. We were told this wouldn't happen. And he's trying to make a word, and then he says the word, and the word is my name. He says, Michael. And then he says it again and again. And, and, we, and we press the panic button. I mean, really, because what? And we press the panic button, and, and the doctor, another doctor, runs in. And I always remember, he, was, he looked about nine years old, this guy. And he runs in, and he, he looks at my dad, and he, and he said, Wow, he says, this wasn't supposed to happen. He didn't say it in a nasty way, he was delighted. And then he said this, he said, it's like a miracle. It's like a miracle. He didn't mean scripture. He meant it's not in the textbook. My father had a 90% recovery. The gift of unconditional love the gift of unconditional love. That is the great light that we have seen. Just down the road, not that far, what is it, the, it used to be called the O'Keefe Center. I don't know what it's called now. It changes its name every two weeks. But that, 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 this years ago, a hot summer evening, a hot summer evening, 
I went to see a play, I was on my own, I came out, there were a group of homeless guys outside asking for money. I never give money, I always say the same thing, are you hungry? And only one has ever said, no, I want money. It, polite, courteous people generally. One guy said, yeah, I'm hungry. I said, do you want any food? I'm hungry. And i never forget, because he, he had his hand in his pocket like this. He had his hand in his pocket. I mean, his jacket, I should say inside his jacket. And I thought maybe he had a, a withered arm or something, but he always had, he had his, arm, his hand hidden. And he said, yeah, I'm hungry. And I said, I'll, I'll get you some food. And I went to a corner store to get some food. Everything is closed. It was 10.45 at night or so. I couldn't find a corner store. So I'm walking along and he's following me and slightly, mm, girly, should, should have given him money. And the only thing that's open is a 24-hour diner. So we we go into the diner, he follows me, and I really feel awkward now. Now I become extremely British suddenly. I think, oh, golly, what do I do? I should have given him money. And we sit down, and he orders some food, and he's sitting here, and I'm sitting there, and I'm looking at this guy, and, he's, he's, and, and, and I, I, I came up with a brilliant opening question. I said, what's your name? What's, what's your name? And he said, horse. I, I said, what, like the animal? And he said, yeah. Well, that was the end of that conversation. And the food came, and he was eating the food, and I was eating the food. And I, I, I felt very out of place and awkward, but anyway. And then I, I said, so, so tell me about yourself, horse. And he said, you, you probably mean why am I homeless? And I felt very small, because that's what I did mean. I wasn't asking this man, you know, what do you think of politics or whatever. Yeah. I defined him by his homelessness. And he told me a story, which I'll never forget. He said... He said, well, my wife and I and our, our daughter came from out east, he said, and we came to Toronto, and it was great. He said, we, 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 had, we partied a lot, we drank, but it was all fine, and we both had jobs, and it was good, he said. And then I, then I began, and he was surprisingly eloquent. He said, I began to drink, and it was my fault. And he said, it was my fault probably a dozen times in the next 10 minutes. And he told me a story. He said, he, got, he became a drunk. It was his fault. It was his fault. And in the end, his wife threw him out, and it quite right, too. It was his fault. And he went out on the street and he drank more and he was drinking and he lost his work and he was just drinking all the time. He said, one day the police came to find him. They were very nice to him. And he said, I've done nothing wrong. And they said, no, you haven't, but you must come with us. And they took him to the hospital. They tracked him down because his wife and his daughter had died. And he didn't give me too many details. But he said that the nurse said to him, the only possession your daughter had with her was, and she gave this to him, what it was. And he said it was her favorite toy that I'd given her, and it was a little toy horse. And he took his hand out of his pocket, and he said, I always hold it next to my heart, and that's why they call me horse. And I felt chilled and small, and I asked him how he managed, and this is what I found extraordinary. He said, well, I, I, got very, I became very angry after this, he said, and I wanted, I just wanted to hate. And I drank and I drank, and one day he said there were, there were these kids and they were giving out food, they were kids, he said, and one of them gave me some food and said, do you need a bed for the night? And I said, yeah. And they, they took me to this house they had, they were just kids, really young kids, and, and, and they looked after me and I said, can I stay? And they said, yeah, you can stay, and I stayed there. And I, he said, I hated, I hated that they were so kind to me. 
I didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. And one day, one guy said, big guy, strong guy, gave me a cup of soup, and I threw it in his face, and it was hot soup, he said. He said, and this guy picked me up, literally picked me up like this, the strong guy, and I thought, go on, hurt me, I deserve it. But then he put me down and said, don't do that again. And Horst said to him, why do you keep forgiving me? And the guy said, you really want to know? Because I've been forgiven. And Horst found out in the next 24 hours that these kids were a group of, of young Christians from very difficult backgrounds, most of them victims of abuse, who had got the money through private organizations to purchase a house in Toronto and look after people on the street. And Horse had given his life to Jesus Christ. And from the moment I had seen him, I judged him, because you, Christians aren't homeless. Christians wear suits and they live in houses. And he had challenges in his life, and, and, and he sometimes used the shelter system, and he sometimes rented a, for a few dollars a, a floor. Sometimes he slept rough, but he tried to do the right thing and never steal and be good and kind to people and lead a Christian life. He had seen the great light. And I had judged that man as soon as I set eyes on him. Unconditional love. The Gospels sing to us. They don't say no, they say yes. They don't judge, they embrace. They don't push away, they pull in. I sometimes, I just shake my head. It, I, I almost weep that the perception of Christians and Christianity out there in the public square, it can be so negative. And, and you know what? It's justified. You speak to many people who are not believers, what's Christianity? Well, isn't it, isn't it people who get upset at things and angry at things, very, very conservative, and they don't like this and they don't like that? And, and I, don't, I don't blame them for having that response. But when you read the Gospels, when you really sit there and spend time with Jesus, every, every morning I do, it's part of the office of the Anglican Church, I, morning prayer, and I sit there and, and I... This stuff is amazing. This is so revolutionary, it makes Karl Marx look more like Groucho. Really? Turn the other cheek. Seriously? Not, not to someone you have a little argument with, someone who has really tried to hurt you. Carry someone's bag, that, the, the extra, you know where that comes from. A Roman soldier could tap you with the, the side of his, of his sword. You had to carry his bag for a certain distance. And Jesus says, carry it twice as far. Forgive, forgive, forgive. Love, love, and love. Anyone who says you're a Christian because it's easy, they just don't know Christianity. It's really hard. Sometimes I think, isn't there another religion? I mean, this is difficult. It's meant to be. It's meant to be. I've used the phrase, the rebel Jesus. The rebel Jesus who didn't mention abortion or contraceptives or euthanasia, but did expose and condemn hypocrisy. Who, who condemned selfishness and the dangers of wealth and anger and inequality. Who didn't speak of the free market, but did reject those who transformed a place of worship into a market of profit. Who didn't obsess about sex, but did welcome and embrace those accused of sexual sin. 
who didn't build walls and fences, but did insist that we rip down all that might separate and divide us, who didn't call for war and aggression, but did demand we throw away weapons and all that might hurt or kill our brothers and sisters. That is the rebel Jesus. Cutting through the pain and the suffering and the confusion of this broken planet and pulling back the curtain to show the splendid truth, the splendid truth of the world's possibilities. He turned the world upside down, challenged the comfortable, side with the outcast and the prisoner. No regard for earthly power, no regard for worldly ambition. The rebellion of Christianity isn't safe. It wasn't supposed to be. The rebellion of Christianity is dangerous. That is the rebel Jesus. That is the great light. That who is, is he who has been worshipped by good people for 95 years in this church. I couldn't care less about denomination, really. Couldn't care less. I care about the rebel Jesus and the gospel of unconditional love. And I care about what Katie and Horse and all the rest of the people I've met over the years and that poor young man in agony and isolated, dying of AIDS, who was held by that police officer and told, somebody loves you. Somebody loves you. Not just somebody. The person. The creator. The everything. That's where the love comes from. So whenever you feel it's not going so well, I can't speak for you, but I certainly feel that sometimes. Know that the story's already been told. It's a good ending. And you have the real power of love on your side. You have for 95 years. God willing, you will have for another 95 years. Amen. Thank you very much.